0: The American South boasts some of the oldest communities of people of Jewish faith. In the 1600s, Jewish people began settling in Charleston, South Carolina. And by the 1700s, South Carolina had the largest Jewish population in the United States. The family recipes and stories that accompany their origins and adaptations in the American South reveal the deep and storied lives of Jewish people, families, and communities across America. We are sitting down with Rachel Gordon Barnett and Lisa Kligman Harvey, two lifelong South Carolinians, to discuss the intersection of traditional Jewish dishes with classic Southern ingredients and African-American culinary traditions. Meet you at the table. I'm Lainey. And I'm Laura Beth. And we are Steel Magnolias strength of steel with the grace of a magnolia. We are here to have uplifting conversations about life
1: in the South, and we've got plenty of room at our table, so pull up a chair.
0: Great. Welcome, Rachel and Lisa Lashonatova.
2: Very nice. Thank you, Lashonatova.
0: happy
3: new year
0: thank you you. we know that that's this is a really important time of year for you guys so we just wanted to say happy new year to you guys
1: well we want you to know that we also have a commonality and passions the importance in preserving history around the dinner table and we have discussed this with our listeners numerous times but we're so excited to have you ladies here to give us your perspective on that topic too
0: I cannot wait to jump into your latest project. You guys have put an immense amount of work into the book that we're going to discuss today. But before we even jump into that, I'm so curious if you guys want to just lead off with, can you just talk about the importance in food in Jewish culture?
3: Well, you know we are um I like to say that I am Southern and Jewish, and that food is my love language. And um, so but I think that for Rachel and I, that really is both uh, comes from both of us. And this book was written um, because of a blog that was centered around gathering stories and histories of um, Columbia, South Carolina's um, individuals who wanted to write and contribute to our blog, Kugels and Collars about some of their favorite recipes, about some of their favorite food memories around the table. And it's been seven years now. And the blog continues. We gathered wonderful stories. So, you know, Jewish people, food is of utmost importance. Um, it's a comfort food. It, um, we gather during the holidays, we gather around the table and happy times. We gather around the table in sad times and food and special foods accompany it. Um, there are traditional foods and then there are new traditional Southern foods that we've kind of begun Mm -hmm. to adopt. And, um, um, and I, I feel that for me, um, food is an intentional way to um, create a legacy and that for my children and my grandchildren, I want to create recipes and I want them to remember, um, you know, what grandma, what mom has done, because honestly, that's how I came to this. I remember my grandmother and my mother cooking yeah. traditional foods around the holidays. So I don't think that is a necessarily that we own, that. <laughs> but I do think that Jewish foods um, have a way of culturally, you know, marking our our place in history and our place um, in the world. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: I would even add, it feels like a lot of the Jewish festivals and celebrations are all about telling the stories. We do uh, celebrate so many of our holidays around the table,
2: uh, whether it's Passover or Rosh Hashanah uh, meals, or even uh, Yom Kippur, where we go to synagogue and we fast for a whole day, and then in the evening, what do we do? We break that fast with a big, big meal. So food is food is always there. <laughs> uh,
3: on Saturday, it was Rosh Hashanah. And um, my mother used to create a beautiful luncheon, and she has extensions for her table that fit around 20 people. So yes, ma'am, I had 20 wow. people um, at a <laughs> seated dinner, and uh, it was buffet. Everybody got up and helped themselves, but we had, I had traditional foods of brisket and kugel. I had sweet and sour meatballs, um, which these are traditional foods um, for Rosh Hashanah. And then because we want to bring in the new year with sweet, healthy foods, maybe not so healthy, but sweet foods. So we have apples and honey. Um, We have a sweet kugel. Our brisket is sweet. Um, even the chicken that I made had apricots and apricot preserves in it. So mm-hmm. yes, there are kind of underlying traditions. Even, but the pomegranate is very meaningful, and it um, it has uh, has many many seeds that represent mm-hmm. good deeds that we are supposed to do. Um, the number of good deeds that we're supposed to do during the year. That might be more information than you need. No, but, I but, um, and we have. Different foods for Passover, and every family, y'all, has um, different family culture. So what I serve might be a little different than what Rachel serves.
2: My table was similar to Lisa's. I had a brisket and a sweet brisket. Um, My chicken was a little different. It was apricot, though. I had that uh, apricot preserves. Um, I did a lot of vegetables. I didn't do a kugel, and and I did rice. Lisa does a traditional dish. It's kasha varnekes, but I do rice instead, which is a very southern thing, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, lots of lovely desserts, apples and honey, of course. Uh, It was, uh, yeah, it's always good. I do matzo ball soup. A lot of people traditionally save that for Passover. Mm -hmm. But my family loves matzo ball soup, and so I make it for every holiday just because my kids don't come home. They're gone now. But So if they show up, they're getting matzo ball soup when they're home. (laughs) Now,
3: there's one thing that I didn't say that I had, and I start off every Rosh Hashanah Um, luncheon with uh, with an appetizer sometimes it's plated on the table but uh, usually I serve it as an appetizer with um, with crackers and um, vegetables but I make chopped liver and I only do it once a year because if you Mm -hmm. ever make chopped liver that's all you'll ever want to do is maybe forget about it and then maybe (laughs) forget and then come back to it but my, uh, my brother-in-laws, they said, that's the only reason they come to town is to eat my chopped liver. So we had so many, if you could even imagine, I don't know why, we don't know why, but chopped liver is a distinct memory for so many of our contributors. We could have written, we could have renamed the book, uh, uh, collards and, uh, chopped liver, but, um, (laughs) And so we really had to pick and choose. Um, uh,
0: yeah,
3: chopped liver recipes. Yeah,
0: that's so interesting. And it's
2: not like people eat chopped liver too much anymore. No. They no. eat it once a year, you know.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. in fact, it's yeah. gotten
1: a negative connotation. What am mm-hmm. I, chopped liver? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, you both have already mentioned kugels, so can you tell our listeners? Because I had to look it up in your book like, I think it can go sweet or savory. Talk about Kugels.
3: So one of the reasons, honestly, it was kind of the the name of the book rolled off my tongue one day, and I just said, Kanisha's Kugels and Collards. And then we thought, wait a minute, too much. So then we went back to Kugels and Collards. And we both make Kugel, we both know Kugel, but we really, I've never um, focused on Kugel. But Lo and behold, um, I did find a recipe that my grandmother Ida uh, did every Friday night Sabbath table, and it's it's the one of the very first recipes in the book. It's called Grandma Ida's Kugel. And it is a sweet kugel. But what we came to know is that kugel is an Eastern European kind of comfort food. It's, it would stretch the meal. It would you know be um, an inexpensive way of feeding a big family. Mm-hmm. And yes, uh, the original kugel was savory. It was probably a potato kugel or um a kugel with um cheese and milk like a a dairy kugel mm-hmm. um maybe not even with the sweet but um we have actually created and know about potato kugels and then our my grandmother is a sweet kugel and it, the recipe is not in the book but we did create um Joan Nathan, actually, uh, who is, um, was a guest speaker of ours one year um, for Kugels and Collards, and uh, we hosted her, and she created a savory Kugel, and we've adopted that It's uh, uh, a collards Kugel. So it's a nice kind of combination. Uh, so it's yeah. potato and it's kind of, would it be in a noodles. casserole
0: family? Would you call it a casserole? Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah
3: thank you for saying yeah. that. If you were to see a kugel and when we like to present it when we photographed it, we it's always in a uh, it's always in a glass pyrex. It just seems to be the thing. But it cuts beautifully into squares, and we um recently had a book launch in Charleston, and we cut it in little squares and put it in little cookie um holders, you know, pretty little mm-hmm. uh, fancy, cookie holder so it's Mm -hmm. almost like a little almost could be served as a dessert
2: it's It's egg noodles so you know what the basis is yes yes or some somebody's referred to it one time as jewish mac and cheese (laughs) it's okay it has dairy i like it already yeah it's a real comfort food (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. lisa's grandmother's loch and kugel is is um delicious it's rich and it's creamy and it has um Cottage cheese, you can have cottage cheese in it, and sour cream, and dairy. I mean, and lots of eggs. It is definitely not dietetic, okay?
1: So <laughs> yeah, comfort um, all the it way. Is
2: really good. It's... Now, Rachel, oh, did totally. you grow up in a kosher home? I grew up in a small town in South Carolina, about an hour from Columbia. My grandparents, um, my grandfather was an immigrant from Russia, and he found his way with his brothers to this tiny little town, and they all opened stores. And back in those days, this is the early teens, 20s, 30s, they, they kept kosher. They raised chickens. They had chickens in their backyard um, and they would kosher them or they'd have the the shochet, the person who could kosher them would come by and do it. Um, so growing up there in the 60s and 70s, yeah, our house was not totally kosher, but my dad had grown up with that style. So there was never pork in the house and no milk and meat together, you know, all of that, uh, no shellfish. I didn't taste a ham sandwich till I was in high school, and it's only because okay. I traded it with a girl who had one. So yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was one of those things that now, do I keep kosher now? Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I've totally adopted, and uh, the. Let's, we got such good food. Have, you know, I've fallen by the wayside. Um, there's certain things that, that old habits might be hard to to die, which is, I don't eat cheeseburgers, just because I don't like, I, I'm not used to it. I, I, and, uh, but shellfish, I'm not a big pork fan. And that's just because I guess I didn't grow up, you know, it's a taste thing. So of course, no pork in the house meant you don't cook your vegetables with pork, right? They we, they were cooked without that type of
1: seasoning. So you would season it with other things. So that was so a question I had as well. So often in the South, we use pork for yeah. seasoning vegetables. So what what would a Southern Jewish cook use to flavor food?
2: Well, in my family, we just used a little bit of salt and some spices. Now, okay. Lisa uses um, what they call, what do they call it? Liquid gold or whatever it is. It's <laughs> chicken schmaltz. It's schmaltz it's rendered chicken fat. Okay. Yeah. Which gives you, you know, that kind of flavor.
3: Yeah. So yeah, schmaltz is just the Yiddish word for chicken fat. And so with my, I'll go back to my chopped liver. So um, I always caramelize onions, chop them up real fine. And I throw in just a little bit of renderings off of the fat that I cut off of a chicken breast or thigh. And I save the Chunkier pieces, and I'll tell you what I do with that in a minute. But I um, take a little bit of that kind of oil from that and cook my onions, and I put that aside. And then what I do is take the chicken fat, it's got a little bit of meat, and I chop it up really fine. And then I put it in the skillet and I cook it down, cook it down until it's almost like crackling. (laughs) So, okay, Okay. and then I uh, when it cools, I can crunch it up. I put a little bit in the chopped liver and a little bit on top. And that's a Yiddish word actually also called gribbonese. So, you know, as far as health, you know, the pork fat or the chicken fat, they might might cancel each other out, but we never really ever put it in our vegetables. Now, you know, that was a meat dish, but I I would never, um, you know, how Southern I, I knew I I would visit my neighbors, and I know they would have a, like a little can in the, by the by the stove, and it was filled with maybe lard, you know, that they would season um, uh, their vegetables or grease mm-hmm. their skillets with. We we didn't grow up that our our grandmothers and mothers grew up with uh, Fleischmann's margarine. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah.
0: Which I is kosher.
3: <laughs> yes. Kosher. Yes, that's so good. Well,
0: since we're all women here at the table together, I'm so curious to know some of your perspectives on the role of, of women in Southern Jewish culture.
2: Well, I would say that um, if I could go back to my grandmothers, both of them, my maternal and my paternal, These were this, they were immigrants. They were strong women. They came to this country looking for, obviously, what immigrants are looking for, religious freedom and a better life and be able to raise their children. And, um, but they worked, they worked in the stores and they ran the houses and um, they cooked. They were, um, and they were, they were amazing women. I mean, we come, both Lisa and I come from a strong line of women that, you know, set great examples. Um, They kept kosher homes Um, because they worked. um, A lot of times, not everybody, I'm going to speak from my own experience. um, They employed African-American women to come in and, and cook. For the family and keep the house and help with the children. And um, in my own family, my um, grandmother employed a woman, Ethel Make Lover, who worked for our family. Um, my grandmother, my father's mother passed away when my father was in high school. And so, Ethel, at that, she taught basically before she passed away, she taught Ethel how to keep the kosher kitchen, how not to bring the pork in, how to, and Ethel in turn brought the recipes in for, from her you know, the vegetables, fried chicken, how to cook really good rice, you know, all of that. So uh, when my mother married my father, mama's from Charleston, um, and moved to this tiny little town in 1955. And I asked her, mama's 90 now. And I said, could you cook? Because her mother had a store on King Street, and she was not a great cook, quite frankly. I mean, she, you know, that wasn't her thing. And she said, of course, I couldn't cook. And I said, well, how did you what did who fed you? What happened? And she said, well, Ethel, of course, taught my mother how to cook. Ethel knew the Jewish recipes because my grandmother had taught them to her. Mm-hmm. She made the kugel. She could make a brisket, the whole thing. And so, you know, um, it, it, I think women hold a, a huge role, obviously, in, not just in the kitchen, but in the mm-hmm. family and in the overall family in the direction of, of that. Um South Carolina is, we're not a huge state, um, and every little town in the turn of the century and even a little bit before it, and until maybe the 70s, 80s, um, you would find Jewish merchants. So this mm-hmm. was kind of a, a story that you find. In, and we have, a, we, would, we say a story at every crossroads. And truly, uh, the Jewish Historical Society of South Carolina, we've been documenting all of the Jewish merchants throughout the state. And you find the story repeated, particularly in the small towns of the women in the stores working and raising the children.
3: Mm-hmm. They
2: were um, you know, quite that. amazing women, quite mm-hmm. frankly.
3: We had another agenda uh, that for the book that we really wanted to honor and recognize um, the African American employed women in um, the homes that of some of the uh, folks that we interviewed and who contributed stories. It, it's not across the board, but it seemed to be a similar story for these working women, and they would bring in. Um, uh, uh, African American women to help them um, raise the children and taught them uh, how to how to create a Jewish uh, kosher kitchen. And these women honestly were probably, invisible for a while, you know. And even though honored by the family, maybe not honored by our community. And we really wanted to recognize their contributions and preserve their recipes because they would bring some of their recipes into our homes. One of the stories in the book is my grandmother's um, uh, uh, employer, Annie Gilliard, and Annie lives side-by-side in Charleston next door on St. Philip Street, where the uh, uh, many Jewish families and many um, African-American families live side-by-side. And the Gileards happen to live next door to the fire tags. That's my mother's uh, parents, my grandparents. And she came over to work for them and you know, would go next door and, and raise her children and help uh, Raised my grandparents' children. And they'd play in the courtyard in the back. But Annie brought okra gumbo to us. I'm sure. She, I'm not sure if she took brisket home uh, to her family, the recipe. But, um, but but that that is a, just kind of a symbol of the local, fresh vegetables that in the rural you know in South Carolina that we have, okra, beans, um, tomatoes, corn, and many of these. Um, vegetables, honestly, were actually brought to America by enslaved um, and to the South by enslaved um, African-Americans. And um, we now benefit from these beautiful uh, dishes, uh, yams, you know, and and rice. But Annie's Okra Gumbo was a told recipe. She was a great cook, but she cooked by taste but my aunt loved that recipe. And she um, always said this was Annie's recipe. So it's in the book, Annie Gilliard's Okra Gumbo. And we were so honored to have, um, you know, her in our lives and, and her recipes and her story. And we have some other stories that are similar. But I will tell you this, we dedicated our book to, to women. So I'm going to read you the dedication. So for the women who came before us and for our children who will continue to tell our southern jewish food stories. So we know how important the role of women has been to us and into to our jewish community
0: so good so good you guys are really really great examples really beautiful examples to your entire community and to those that are coming up after you of how to preserve these sorts of traditions and the things that that you lived through or the stories that you've heard you've just i'm just so grateful for this project to um To exist. And the project is is called Kugels and Collards. It's the stories of food, family, and tradition in Jewish South Carolina. Uh, In 2016, uh, the Historic
2: Columbia um, gathered a group of us together um, to talk about how they could document Columbia's Jewish history. And we met and ended up with a fabulous Columbia Jewish Heritage Initiative where we have stories, oral histories, and walking tours, and historic markers, and they've documented Columbia's Jewish history beautifully. Uh, Lisa and I had a a, a different direction we wanted to go. We wanted to talk about how memory and food, these food memories, um, would be a great vehicle uh, to tell your family's history, Mm -hmm. and we approached them about that, and they agreed and the name Kugels and Collards came from Lisa, obviously Kugels being, as we talked about, the Jewish and Collards being the Southern. And we started off with a blog. And Historic Columbia's marketing team, was they were fantastic. And we you know, would put the blog post up. We invited friends. We hunt, hunted out people who we knew would have the great story. And we did that for several years. And the University of South Carolina Press asked us if we would consider expanding it and maybe taking it to book form. So we wrote a proposal, and they accepted it, and none of this happened too quickly. (laughs) And uh, the proposal was accepted right about the time the United States went into lockdown for COVID. Mm. So for a couple of years, while we were, well, it was a great project for us to do, because thank goodness for Zoom and emails, Mm -hmm. and we were able to find people. And I'm the executive director for the Jewish Historical Society of South Carolina, so I had this Lovely big broad base of people across the state and beyond and outside of the state, people who grew up in South Carolina. We were able to um, send out, you know, we're this is what we're looking for. We're looking for 600 to 900 words about your family, the best food you've had, you know, a family memory centered around food or around your mother's best, whatever she made, and all that. So all the stories came in and we would pursue stories. Lisa did a bunch of Zoom interviews with families who um, in some cases hadn't seen each other because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so they got on Zoom and it became a very emotional kind of you know, wow. enterprise. I mean, they would start talking about family memories and food. And, you know, one thing led to the other. And that's what we found about food. Food is at that great vehicle. It it brings out such response from people. You know, they they can almost smell their grandmother's brisket. That's right. Or there's this great story about the family, right? Or you pick up a piece of china and you go, oh my gosh, that was my grandmother's. And then you start talking about grandma and then that leads to the next story. So um, four years in the making, the book itself. So four years uh, to get this book into print. And you know, our launch date was August 29th, and we're just really pleased. And uh, you know, we hope, from from my standpoint as an executive director of a historical society, this adds to the body of of all of the documentation of of what we're doing to document South Carolina's Jewish history. Mm-hmm. So I'm really pleased with that. And we know there are so many more stories to tell. This is just a tiny snapshot of South Carolina. They, those stories are out there. We know that. We hope that people. Well, now, you know, maybe this will spark them to sit down with that recorder or pen and paper, whatever they want to use and get that story from their grandmother Mm -hmm. or get that recipe or get those kids in the kitchen cooking with you and write it down. Um, So many of these recipes were not written down Mm -hmm. and so many of them are trial and error, you know, Um, but they're so important to to save and to document. It, I think the stories that go along, the recipes are wonderful, but I think it's the stories Absolutely. that go along with them that really gives you the depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us right. where and the proceeds yeah, of this cookbook that.
1: go as well.
2: Yeah. So the proceeds, thank you for asking. The proceeds from, from the book, the royalties go to the Jewish Historical Society of South Carolina and to Historic Columbia's Jewish Heritage Initiative. Lisa and I, this has been our volunteer, our our love project. For these many years. And we've just loved doing it, quite yeah. frankly. And we're just really pleased at the reception we've had from it.
1: I love that. Well, I'm excited to make the Israeli hummus because Laura Beth and I have huge fond memories of being in Israel and mm-hmm. having fresh hummus and fresh pita. And it's so mm-hmm. different than what you by store oh, yeah.
2: bought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: It is. And and those yeah. uh those ingredients are really uh, readily available. You know, we we like to think, or I like to think, um, I'm an, a therapist and an artist, and I. You know, food is a sensory experience—the smells, the taste, the visual presentation—and that evokes very rich emotions. So, like you know, we said, Rachel, one thing leads to another, and um, you know, you don't have to really. It just takes a one little dish to paint a beautiful memory and evoke people that have passed uh, people that are not at the table but told a funny story Mm -hmm. so either you're laughing or you're crying when you're talking around the table around food which makes us very happy
0: that's so fun I love it. You guys are such kindred spirits with us. I feel like so many of the things that you're saying are things that we've said in relation to food and families and just the the passing down. I loved Lisa, the term you used, told recipe. I've never actually heard it called that, but I knew exactly what you meant. And um, yeah, it's just a really yeah. important project. Yeah. Do you guys, just shifting a little, have any favorite uh, bakeries yes. or delis in, in South Carolina that are your go-tos?
2: Well, Groucho's is our go-to in Columbia. Okay. And that was it was begun by um back in the twenties, thirties, forties, somewhere back we're back there. Um it's um third generation owned now. And so that's actually I think they franchise her around the state. Okay. Um Harold's Cabin in Charleston. Okay has reopened and um it's uh they have a great burger i don't know if there's (laughs) so much a deli anymore but it has fabulous history um bakeries as far as you know getting good jewish baked goods here in a bakery doesn't happen it's mainly home cooks that are baking the rugula and the mandel bread and challah lisa's sister heidi makes fabulous
3: challah Mm. and um you know, Please. when we talk to people from California, they they uh, think that that the Jews in the South are kind of a little bit of an anomaly, and they you know don't they they group us with the with Jews from the North that are, have readily Jewish foods available to them, but I think because we don't. Perhaps this is why kugels and collards became a thing. We don't have the delis. We don't have the pastrami sandwiches or the fresh bagels or the, you know, we can't just go to a store and buy kosher meats. I mean, now you can actually get kosher meats, but um, they're not kosher butchers really around the block anymore like there were uh, for our grandparents. So things are different. Um, but the, the I think that the Jewish foods, which we try to explain, traditional foods, are on the table, not enmeshed with the southern foods, but side by side. So mm-hmm. we have our traditional foods along with our rice and greens and okra gumbo, and so it's a beautiful blending and a beautiful table. A lot of Jewish traditional foods are brown. <laughs> So the Southern vegetables are a welcome, you know, addition to our table.
1: Well, while I have you two treasures here at my disposal, I have another question that's not food related. I want to know what are some of your favorite places of importance to the Jewish culture in the American South?
2: So uh, that's a great question. Wow, that's a great
1: question.
2: <laughs> um, well, from a historical standpoint, I will say that in South Carolina, in Charleston, um, KKBE is uh, was founded. Well, actually, next year, South Carolina KKB will celebrate 275 years of communal Jewish life. Kahel Kadosh. Beth Elohim. But you can say KKBE if you want to go find it on a website. Sumter, South Carolina has a beautiful synagogue that has now been turned into um, a museum and is a beautiful um, example. It was built in like 1912, 1914, um, and the architecture is stunning as well as the exhibits. And in the Jewish South, uh, you know, there's the Bremen Museum in Atlanta that I have visited. That's, so when and now in New Orleans, there is the Museum of the uh, Southern Jewish
1: Experience. Yes, we want to go there. <laughs> um, and I have. Yeah.
2: Yes. And we do, too. Um, actually, they're so we are very appreciative. They're selling our book in their cool. um, bookshop right now. So we hope to get down there. Yeah. So whenever. Yeah. Whenever I travel, that's what I'm seeking out, obviously, because, you know, the South has a really interesting um, Jewish history. I mean, it really is quite fascinating. It's very different than um, any other part of the country, I think. So I, I, I tend to look for beautiful synagogues mm-hmm. and, and the architecture particularly, mm-hmm. as well as you know, hunting out small towns where you might find what was the last vestige of Jewish life there. Mm-hmm. You may see a storefront. And maybe it's become something else, but sometimes you'll find the the original name, you know, still in the uh, tile work, and it might have been a Jewish Mm -hmm. merchant in that community. So, uh, yeah, Lisa, you got anything else you want to add?
3: Charleston, at one time, girls had more Jewish people who came to America than New York City. Um, Charleston was a welcoming city, and this uh, Sephardic or Mediterranean Jews came to Charleston in the late, uh, in the, uh, starting the 1600s to the 1700s, and built a beautiful and. A beautiful community here and a strong community. Now over time, of course, um, that gave way to the northern cities and the larger cities in the north, uh, and so the population of Jews uh, diminished. But um, their the, their work and their community and that their community uh, uh, lived. And there is a uh, the synagogue that Rachel is talking about is really celebrated and has a beautiful gift shop, which. I like. And they, uh, Charleston does Jewish tours, walking tours, as well as Columbia. Historic Columbia um, does a tour of the merchants on Main Street and Assembly Street. And still talks about, um, you know, talks about the uh, where and how the Jewish merchants uh, came to Columbia. So you can find a little Jewish history um, in the smallest part of South Carolina mm-hmm. to the capital of South Carolina.
2: We also document cemeteries um, mm-hmm. as well. Our cemeteries are well documented on the Jewish Historical Society website. Cummings Street Cemetery in Charleston um, is one of the oldest uh, with graves dating back to the beginning times of Charleston communal, Jewish communal life. And they do tours of that as well. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. We've got, we have our history. Wow. It's here. Wow. Uh, And documented. Yeah, we work. That's what we do all the time. We're working to continue to document it. Kugels
0: and Collars just adds to that Yes, yes. Well, ladies, keep up the great work. We are so grateful for all the volunteer hours that you're putting in. And again, the book is called Kugels and Collards. We're going to link to it in our show notes so that you guys can easily find it. But, again, can't thank you enough for your time. And I feel like we should say shalom. Shalom. <laughs> oh, shalom, y'all. Well, that was delightful. Thank you, girls. Y'all are, y'all are wonderful. Well, so, yeah. you. I know. Uh, let's meet New Orleans. That's
2: a great question.